I would kindly ask you to please turn in your Bibles or your devices to Lamentations 3. That's going to be our reading. Lamentations chapter 3. If you're visiting, welcome. We're glad you're with us. And if you're part of our church family, welcome. We're glad that you're with us too. Lamentations chapter 3. We will read the first 20 verses of that poem. The word of God reads, Jeremiah the prophet. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has welled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And that is the reading of the Word of God. Let us pray once again. Father, we commit the reading of your Word to you and also the exposition of it. We pray that Christ may be exalted, that you may be the subject of our speech, that all the glory may go to you through your Spirit. But also we pray for your people that they are blessed. And even as our pastor prayed, those who are suffering this morning, those who cannot even gather to worship comfortably, we pray that you be with them in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. About 30 years ago, Cornerstone went through what our brothers and sisters in the West Coast are going through. Gathering for the first time after a hurricane. Back then it was Andrew. Some of you were not born. Others were not living here. Others are unable to remember because you were too small. But it is very hard the circumstances under which they are meeting today. And when these tragedies strike, we have to wonder, where's God? How do we face suffering? 
Leibniz, the German mathematician, philosopher, diplomat, lawyer, a genius of the 17th century, coined the term theodicy. And theodicy is just how do I justify God in light of suffering? That question, your bright and clever professors ask in college the first time you arrive there, if there is a God, then how come there's evil in the world? If there's a God of love, how does he permit evil? If he's omnipotent, why doesn't he stop evil from happening? Well, that is not the idea of your brilliant professor. That is as old as dirt. It's so old that the Bible has several poems dealing with the issue of where's God when there's suffering. Habakkuk chapter 3, Lamentation chapter 3, the poem of Job, many of the Psalms of Asaph deal with that difficult subject of why suffering if God is. There's many answers to that. Well, God permits evil. God allows it to happen. Evil is the absence of goodness, just as darkness is the absence of light. God has a greater purpose. God never ordains evil. He only allows it. Let me say something from the get-go. I am not God's public relations manager. I don't have that title. And I don't intend to be. God doesn't need to be defended or apologized for because he doesn't do it. He is. He acts. He ordains. And he wills. And he is God. And we have two options. We like it or we don't like it. But if we don't like it, it doesn't change him. I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm not trying to be insensitive. My son is helping people in need. And he is telling me some of the things he is seeing firsthand. I still remember Andrew. And some of you too. I'm not trying to be light about it. I'm not trying to be cold about it. All I'm saying is... There is an unsolved mystery when we look at evil. There is a question that no philosopher, atheistic, or agnostic friend or professor has ever answered for me. I grant you, if God is God, why does he allow evil? I give it to you. If God is so loving and kind and omnipotent, why do those things happen? Why did he create a world with evil? But they have never answered to me, yeah. And how on earth, knowing that, he created the world, knowing that it would cost him to become incarnate, live a life on this earth, and then die on a cross to deal with the evil of the world. Because if I would have been God, no. They bought for my daughter Sarah a, uh, an ant, ant farm. Is that what it is? An ant farm. So it's there in my kitchen counter, this thing with some gel that is made of sugar. And you see the ants there digging their holes and their tunnels and, and happily living in their ant farm. And my heart breaks for them because they have a lifespan of about five to six weeks. And there's nothing I can do about them. I wanted to get them out and release them to life. And they were, I was warned not to do that because they bite very bad. And you don't want to have a problem with ants, biting ants and fire ants in your house. So, okay, I'll have to see them and let them die. 
Now, with all the pity those ants elicit, I don't have any plans to die for them. God did. He created a world he knew it would cost the death of his son. So that Cordeus homo, that question from Anselm, why did God become man, has not been answered by any of the philosophers and the ones who question God when tragedy hits. And this morning, all I want to take from this poem, is not even exposit the poem, but just say, here's a man facing an apocalypse. Here's a man who realizes who was behind this apocalypse he saw and who moved him to write this poem. His bewilderment. But then there's this change of thought he has all of a sudden. There's a shift in his thinking that I didn't read on purpose. And of course, then our, then we see in the poem the thoughts he had about God, even in the midst of his circumstances. So, question is, how do we face suffering? How do we deal with suffering? Well, what is the context of these words that Jeremiah writes? It is an apocalyptic scene. The year was 586 before Christ. The Babylonians came for the third time to Jerusalem. We speak about the deportation and we think it's one. There were four. One by the Assyrians of the northern kingdom. Three times the southern kingdom was taken by the Babylonians. The last one was a devastating one. They burned the temple, destroyed the city, killed prophets, priests, Young men and old men dying on the streets. The scene was so apocalyptic. And it's in the text. And I'm sorry that I have to... It's in the Word of God. The scene was so apocalyptic that pregnant women under the siege would eat their fetuses. Because they were dying of hunger. This is not Noah waving goodbye from the ark. This is as bad and as real as it gets real life and tragedy. And this is what Jeremiah, who had been told beforehand, this is what's going to happen. Warn them. Tell them, but they will not listen to you. And then your eyes will see what I will do to Israel. So at that destruction, and at that apocalyptic scene... Lamentations too. I didn't read that for you, but I'm going to do it now. Jeremiah questions God, challenges God, and says, Whom have you ever treated like this? What, which of the peoples of planet Earth, God, have you ever done? what you have done to your covenant people. Should women eat their offspring? We read our Bibles too fast. We get into this Bible reading in a year. Oh, it's Lamentations today. And we just rush through it. Did you hear what I read? Should women eat their offspring? Cutting themselves to eat their fetuses? That is gory. That is a... I don't even know what rating of a movie you would get to see that. The children they have cared for. 
should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? We get scandalized when there is a bombing at a church. They had it. Right in the temple, priest and prophet, young and old, lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and young women have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. He's talking to God. You have slaughtered them without pity. That is blasphemous. Jeremiah the prophet is telling God, You have slaughtered your people without pity. If I spoke that way before you, you would run from me. It's in scripture. Who was behind this tragedy? It was not random acts of people who were crazy. It was not politics. <laughs> it was not social upheaval. Oh, we Christians get so caught up Monday through Friday in our favorite talk shows. We get so caught up in woke and Black Lives Matter, MAGA, and all of these things. We just get tangled there. This tragedy was not that. It was not imperial power thirst either. All the Babylonians wanting to expand their covering of the world. No. Well, it was the devil. No. It was God. Jeremiah knew exactly what was going on. He was a prophet who for years had preached what was coming. And he knew why. Deuteronomy 11 deals with the curses and the blessings from Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And as you're approaching Jerusalem, you see those two mounts in front of the other. One was the Mount of Blessing, what was the Mount of, the other one, the Mount of Cursings. And God would say to them, if you obey me, if you follow my law, I will bless you. I will prosper you. But if you disobey, you become idolaters, I will curse you. And exactly what happened to them, God prophesied it at least a thousand years before. No, 500 years before. I went too far in my calculations. But God had warned them. Jeremiah knew exactly, knew exactly what was going on. In Job 36, 32, Job says, God takes a lightning and makes it hit its mark. Like when you take your touch screen and you move your mouse and your curse to, or your cursor to do something, Job says, yeah, God takes a lightning bolt and sends it to where he wants it to hit. Amos says, when a trumpet sounds in the city, wouldn't people get ready for war? When disaster comes into the city, has not the Lord declared it? That's Amos 3.6. I'm not making that up. Or even Jeremiah 10, 12 through 13. When God thunders, he causes the waters to rise and also the winds. And he brings them with his destructive power from his storehouses. Yes, it's poetic language. But Jeremiah is saying it is God who sends those things. 
Isaiah 45, 7 says, I am the Lord. I form the light and also the darkness. I create good and I also create evil. It's in the Bible. Oh, but, 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 but God doesn't do that. Well, then, then take some wipe or take your suffer and delete those Bible verses. Because I read them to you from the Bible. I don't understand it. Oh, me neither. I wish I would. My son asked me last night, Dad, what do I tell people? He says, don't tell him anything, son. Just help him. Bring them whatever you're bringing. Diapers, clothes, food. Give it to them. Serve them. Don't say anything. Don't pour vinegar in an open wound. Because if you're one of those arrogant theologians who will come into my dying bed or funeral just to say, yes, God ordains all of those things, you evil, wicked people. Please don't come talk to me. Because my wound is open, I don't need vinegar on it. And Solomon says there are some individuals who just, when they speak, they put vinegar in open wounds. There are things we don't know. So I told him, son, if you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Because when those things happen, we put our mouths to the dust. And we just wait on the Lord. It happened to us 30 years ago. Now it's happening to other people 30 years later. And no, it is not because they are more evil than what we are. There's no more sin in Fort Myers or in Sanibel than there is in Miami Beach, for the matter, or in Kendall. It happened because it happened. God doesn't check with me every morning to make the sun rise. Now, Jeremiah is bewildered. Jeremiah doesn't... He's writing a poem, and I believe Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I believe it is the Word of God. And this man, guided by the Spirit, is writing a poem of bewilderment. 23 times in 20 verses, he says, God, you have done this. He's attributing all that evil... To God. He says, you have beseeched me. You have enveloped me. Just like, like the Assyrians or the Babylonians beseeched Jerusalem. And nobody could come in and out and they caught the water supplies. You have done the same to me. You have, you have me walled. I don't even know what to do. My chains are heavy. I cannot move. You, he even says in verses 12 and 13... You decided to play darts with me. You started shooting arrows at my back. And I, I, I was, I was the, the target. And you just had fun shooting arrows at me. Jeremiah accuses God of that. You, you made me eat. You made my teeth grind. That's an expression because the Babylonians would put sand in the bread of the people whom they would take. Have you ever gone to the beach and your food gets sand and you're just having your sandwich and you're... And you just sand in your sandwich or your spaghetti. If you're Latino and like to go to the beach with spaghetti as I used to do when I was a kid. And you're having spaghetti with sand. Well, that's what he's referring to. Sand sandwich. You made me eat. Great sandwich. And not the good southern grit we love for breakfast. No, no. Great. Hard. Stones. 
his hopelessness in verse 17. His melancholy, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. My endurance has perished. That's a language of depression. For those of you who know that language, everything turns dark. You can't see anything. People come and try to sing songs to you and try to tell you, God is good. Everything's going to be okay. And in your mind, it's all dark. You don't see anything. You try to pray. You can't pray. You feel God is not answering. Jeremiah describes all of that in the poem. This is so hard that I've read some commentators. They even shun away from it. They don't want to say what it says. They try to find an explanation because this is language that you say, Jeepers, what is this? Well, I don't know what it is. The Holy Spirit inspired those words. But you know where's the consolation I find in it? Hard thoughts and hard words against God are nothing new to Him. Scripture has them. Not as an example for us to imitate, but as a consolation for us to know, yeah, God knows. You're not the first one who's going through that. He's heard that before from some of his children, from some of his choicest children. But then there's a shift in the poem, and I love it. Because all of a sudden, in verse 21, something happens, and we have a complete change of thoughts. Without any change in circumstances, Jeremiah starts to vindicate God. He starts to think right about God and to have the right thoughts about Him. He says, but, and it starts with that adversative conjunction, sharp contrast, U-turn. But, verse 21, this I call to mind, not to my feelings, not to my emotions, not to my whatever I feel when the music is playing. No, this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Beloved, there is a fortress in our minds. I know that some of the modern churches and modern evangelicalism likes to speak about fortresses and tearing down fortresses. And I, don't even, I, don't, I don't even know what they're talking about. It sounds to me like something really weird, Eastern kind of religion, mysticism, and people just buy it. Well, the fortresses exist. Yeah, in our minds. The incorrect thinking Paul speaks about those fortresses in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. You know how? He says, yes, we tear down those fortresses by leading every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So yes, those are the fortresses. Thinking right. That's why in Romans 12 he says, do not be conformed or molded into the shape of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because who do you think is our favorite preacher? 
us. That's the one we hear all day long. When we wake up in the morning, I say, oh my, I have to see my boss today. I have to see that customer. Oh jeepers, and this co-worker, this guy has me up to the brim. That's us preaching to ourselves. We haven't said a word. Sometimes my wife hears the, the donkey. She lives with a donkey. Says, what is it now? Says, please leave me alone. Leave me alone. And it's me just sighing. Listening to myself. Because we do listen to ourselves. Psalm 42. David spoke to himself. Why are you disturbed and disquieted within me, O my soul? And he was depressed. He was under trouble. But he says, hope in God. Because yet you have to worship him. This is exactly what Jeremiah does. I yet have hope in God. Because his mercies never cease. His steadfast love never ends. It is renewed every morning and his circumstances hadn't changed. It's not that all of a sudden he got a promotion, a raise, or a nice thing, a nice vacation coming. He was still under the same darkness that he started. But he switched his thinking and now he talked to himself. Now let me, let me make a little remark on, on our preaching talking to a pastor this week and he says and he's about my age he's a little bit younger he says Edwin is it that, that I'm old that I cannot adapt to this modern style of preaching he says what do you mean brother well I don't know I still see the text and I have to expose the text and explain it and then from and, but then when I hear others preaching is just stories and anecdotes and, and nice things and people having fun and I says well we, we have a lot to learn from them we have to learn to be more Exciting, I don't know, more, more vivid, more illustrative in our preaching. We have to learn from them. But don't throw the baby with the bathwater. I mean, Freddie has a little group on, what is that new WhatsApp thing that, that we have? What's, it, what's the name of it? Telegram. Telegram. Freddie has a little group in Telegram, and the guys who preach to you in this church are in that group. It's called uh, Gospel Preachers, right? Gospel preachers. And, and in that group, we talk to each other and we encourage each other and try to even help one another, you know, mistakes we make or things we need to improve and work on. And we all do that for one another. So, yes, we're always trying to make it better. Some of us go through the pain of having to see ourselves or listen to ourselves just to spot things to improve and make them better. But there's one thing we're not going to change. We're not going to change feeding the mind. That's non-negotiable. We're not going to change expounding the text in context and even in the theological framework of redemptive history. Sorry, that's boring. What we try to do is preach shorter to help you with that. But we're not going to make it nice, anecdotal, and historical. Because that's not the name of the game. The name of the game is feed your mind and undergird it. Because when the evil day comes, that's the only thing that holds you. And it's not theoretical for a 59 and a half year old dude who's seen a lot of darkness. When you're dark and nothing makes sense, the only thing that holds you is not the nice Maranatha song. It's the truth. Girding your mind. 
in preventing you from committing any mad act. That's what holds your marriage, that's what holds you at home, holds you at work, and holds you through life. Jeremiah had a shift. In the midst of his pain, he started having the right thoughts about God. And there's three things he mentions about God. The love of God, his kindness never ceases. He's not consumed, he's not quenched, he's not stifled. It's always there. Doesn't stop. It is a never dying source of what? Of kindness, of mercy. It doesn't wobble. It doesn't come in and out. His mercy never runs out. Even the psalmist says his anger is for a moment. But his favor? No, his favor is for a lifetime. We swim in the ocean of God's mercy. You can't escape it. We are inside this atmosphere of oxygen and hydrogen. We breathe it, but we walk through it. We live in it. That's exactly how the believer benefits from God's mercy. It never stops. I love it that from the love, the steadfast love of God, it changes to the mercy of God. It's a feminine word. Its root in the Hebrew is a mother's womb. He had seen mothers eating their children. Cannot even imagine the desperation, the mental condition that drives through that. But I have heard that under duress, our minds change. And we're capable of doing things unimaginable to us. He says, well, the mercy of God is a mother's womb. Is a mother caring for her children. It's interesting that he uses in plural. It's plural. It's abundant. It's mercies upon mercies and upon mercies. And they are renewed daily. Run out of them at night? You, don't, you cannot run out of them at night. But just in case, they are renewed in the morning. And then he speaks of the faithfulness of God. Verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. This is covenant love. Covenant love has nothing to do with Hollywood love, by the way. Young people, single men and young ladies, find men and women who understand what a covenant is. Covenant is is swearing to your own herd and not changing. A covenant is, I promise God that I would do this. And it doesn't matter what comes my way, I promise God that I would care for you until death do us part. And Jeremiah says, the love of God is covenant love. And he's not like ours. He's not like us. He doesn't change. He doesn't wobble. He's not moved by emotions. He's not swayed by the mood of the day. Remember when he appeared to Moses? Moses, what's your name? And he says, I am who I am. That's where our Yahweh comes from. I am the God who lives in the ever-present. Never changes, never will change. He says, but I'm the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. But they had been dead for 200 years. Yes, Moses, but I want you to know that I made a promise to them. And I'm going to keep it. 
And when Jesus was talking to the Sadducees, he appealed to the same argument. God is the God of Abraham and of Jacob and of Isaac. And that was 2,000 years later. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Because his love is covenant love. So you know what, brother? That's great, but I don't feel it. I know. <laughs> Sometimes I don't either. So what's the answer? The answer is God knows. Used to have a pastor here, Jeff Gwynn. And we used to, some of us used to mock him. Because when you would come with something difficult to Jeff, says, Jeff, but what about this? He would look at you and say, it's hard. God knows. Some of us didn't like that answer. Give me the key. Give me the answer. Give me the secret to a happy life. People spend thousands of dollars going to conferences. Because they believe that this guru at the conference, this great theologian or speaker, will tell them the secret of life. There ain't any secret to life. Hang on. Persevere to the end. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. It's going to be hard sometimes. It's going to be great sometimes. That's it. But God knows. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who was tempted in all things, just as we are tempted. But he had no sin. Let me make this theological clarification about Christology. It was clarified to me, thankfully, by Arcis Pro, and I was an old dude when I got that clarification. Always thought that Jesus on earth was like Clark Kent. Have you seen those movies? That, or the old, the old cartoons. I know you kiddos, you don't know what are those cartoons. But Clark Kent would have come with his glasses, whatever. And somebody would shoot at him and he would just like... He, would, he just had the, the little suit, but he was Superman inside. No, no, that was not Jesus. Jesus was not Superman disguised as Clark Kent. Jesus was made like us. When he felt hunger, he was hungry. When he felt thirst, he was thirsty. When he was tempted, he was tempted. But without sin. When he cried, he meant it. When he told his father in John 12, My soul is disturbed to the point of death. He was really disturbed to the point of death. But he was without sin. So when we are there, he's like saying, okay, get your act together. I, would, I raise my, my poor boy. <laughs> he says, thank you, dad. It's okay. I needed that. Otherwise, I would have been a criminal. But, <laughs> but I'm so sorry because he would, he would come bleeding, hurt, and my phrase to him was, suck it up. You're a boy. Take it. Thank God. He, he was built sturdy. It will be nicer to your boys. You know, you can hug him. It's okay. And kiss him. Don't, don't need to be as harsh. But the point is, God is not that way. Jesus knows what it feels like. So he can come to the aid and intercession and mediation of those who are tempted. So when Jeremiah says, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, yeah, 
It hadn't happened. But five centuries later, there was one hanging on a cross whose agonies were such that an unbeliever standing by pitied him and took a hyssop and put some analgesic in it and brought it to him. He saw the suffering of our Savior. He says, give, give a Tylenol to that poor guy. And he brought a hyssop, mingled myrrh and wormwood and some other stuff to assuage his pain. And when Jesus tasted it, and he knew it was an analgesic, he didn't want it. He didn't want to assuage the pain that our sins and our curse brought to him on the cross. Jeremiah felt desperate and desolate. Jesus cried, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And none of us have known that forsakenness because none of us have been to hell ever. None of us know the helplessness and the hopelessness of condemnation. Even in the worst of our pains, we still cry, Oh God, oh God, have mercy, help me. And we still have the hope that He will. There's no hope in that place. There's no hope of mercy in hell. Jesus took it in our place and he felt it and he meant it. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jeremiah says, the man who is humbled, who's suffering, put his mouth to the dust, let him give his cheek to the abusers. Yeah? When Jesus was before the high priest, they blindfolded him. Soldiers says, let's have some fun. They would strike him with a cane. Hit him with their fists. Tell us. Aren't you the son of God? Who hates you? We used to play that game when we were little. We call it we called it hot hand, mano caliente. You would get under a wall, put the hand there, and somebody would come and just smack you. And you had to figure out who it was, looking at their guilty faces. They played that with Jesus. With his head. With his face. They spat on him. They insulted him. Do you realize he never answered? He could have answered. Do you know why he didn't answer? He was taking our insult. He was taking what we deserve. He was bearing our wounds and our guilt and our shame. In shame condemned, he stood in our place. So how do we face suffering? Honestly, no need to pretend. 
Now, we don't want to be the person who's always complaining. How are you doing, brother? Oh, you're a worm suffering. I mean, the first time I'll try to comfort you, the second time I'll say, oh, man, the third time I'll just dot you. I'll go get a hold of, of uh, Tosh or somebody who makes me happy. Somebody who makes me laugh. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, we're here to serve one another, but if you're always, you know, groping and complaining and moaning. and <sighs> No, but at the same time, we have to be honest. Rough way, brother, or sister. Yeah, it's been tough, but it's okay. We have hope. If we face suffering honestly, realistically, our sufferings are God-ordained. If you want to use the word God aloud, it's okay with me. I'm not going to argue. But just for clarification, it's not that poor God is in heaven saying, Oh, oops, oops, ouch, oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible takes the lightning and says, there, and he goes there. He's sovereign. He does, according to Psalm 115, whatever he pleases. And he answers to no one. I don't like it. Sorry. Just a messenger. I didn't write the book. They told me what to say about it. So we have to be realistic. But then, remember who is it who afflicts you. And that's key. When you face your affliction. And some of us have pains that will never go away. Until we die. And are on the other side. But whatever it is that afflicts you, remember who sent that affliction. And this is how the poem ends. Verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is the one who's afflicting you. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Job said, even though he slay me, I will hope in him. Why? Because the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. Verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he causes grief... He will have compassion according to the abundance of his mercy. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, it is not for fun he does it. It is for purposes that, I'm sorry it's beyond my pay grade to know. But one day we will know when we see clearly face to face. When we know as we have been known, when it is no longer through a polished stone that we see blurry images, but when we see clearly, then we will get it. Until then, the Lord is our hope. We will not be shaken. Father, bless your word. Comfort those afflicted. Comfort our brethren and our friends afflicted in this hour because of the hurricane. And give us wisdom to be salt and light and to point to you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.